Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Dr. Christine Sauer is a retired MD and ND. She has not only treated cancer patients, but she has also been a caregiver for her mother-in-law and Christine has volunteered in palliative care. I am so excited to have this conversation today with both a provider and a caregiver. Christine, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thanks so much, Andrea, for having me. And I have to add my brother, has cancer since he was 20. He's now 63 and still going strong. Wow, He's what came kind? back four times. He beat Hodgkin's lymphoma every time. He has four kids and is truly overcome it all and is so far cancer-free after 43 years living with cancer. So it's possible. Oh, I just got chills. Oh, thank you so much. Wow. Oh my goodness. I don't think I've ever heard of uh, lymphoma coming back so many times. Yeah. That's... After the first 10 years, he had been told, forget about it. it it's over. You're cancer free. Yeah. After year 11, it came back. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, well, tell us about you. Why did you decide, why did you decide to become a doctor? And, um, and why did you choose to focus on treating cancer patients? Oh, thank you so much. And I became a doctor because at age four, I knew I wanted to become a doctor and just help people. And I'm interested in science. I come from a family of teachers and scientists. When I thought about what I wanted to be when I grow up, a doctor was just natural. I love what <laughs> doctors do. And kids love to play doctor, of course. And so did I. And all my friends and teddy bears got cured, but in a different way. And most kids play with their dolls and teddy bears. But my teddy bear drove me crazy because it made that funny boom noise. And I didn't figure out where it came from. So I had to cut it open. <laughs> and I found the mechanism inside. You did? Oh, no. I loved it. My mother didn't. She hollered at me and said, what are you doing there? You destroyed teddy bear, sew it back together. So that's how I learned to sew. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that was my oh. first introduction into surgery. So tell us more, what was your specialty and why did you decide to focus on cancer patients? Um, I, I didn't actually totally focus on cancer patients. Obviously my brother being diagnosed at age 20 plus with uh, lymphoma sparked my interest. And like all medical students, when you're in medical school, you're tired and you palpate your neck and you say, oh my God, there's an enlarged lymph node. I have Hodgkin's lymphoma. <laughs> you diagnose yourself and then you notice it's just not true. You don't have all the diseases just because you might have one symptoms at some time. I was lucky I didn't have it. I became a doctor and I got married, had two kids. I first started off as a family doctor with my ex-husband in Germany. I became an ND family doctor. And then I said, what can I do to help even more people? And I added the dermatologist and allergologist to it. And as a dermatologist in Germany, we did a lot of surgery. So I did surgery on skin cancers. I treated melanoma patients. I treated in the hospital and in my office patients with 
different skin cancers. I made the diagnosis quite frequently. In the hospital it was quite interesting because we saw the late stage patients. We did chemotherapy in the dermatology department. In Germany that is actually a department of internal medicine in a way. So we do dermatology, uh, we treat melanoma in Germany with chemotherapy, what here is doing the on oncologist. So it was, we saw a lot of patients in the end stages. One of the patients with end stage melanoma died in my arms. He had a massive lung embolism, which was a blessing in disguise. How so? You know, melanoma is a nasty cancer. For, for, for one, it often affects younger people. For second, it spreads very fast. For third, it affects the skin. So people can see it. And that poor man had his whole leg uh, uh, covered with black, sometimes open tumors. We had to wrap it every day. It didn't smell pretty to say the least. He was suffering, not so much from pain that can be dulled. The smell canned a little bit. The knowledge that it went all through his body impacted him and his family a lot. When I did the rounds one day and he was sitting in bed and not feeling very well, his family was present. We were talking about what was going on, like doctors do. And suddenly he sat up, opened his eyes wide, didn't say a word, grabbed his throat, and fell back and was dead. Wow. And his wow. family was there? Yeah. So, as a physician, what do you do? I made sure that that's what it was. He didn't want to be resuscitated which I was grateful for that we had that conversation beforehand. His families expected something like that. They were prepared. Of course, the widow broke down and cried over him. As a doctor, I sat down with them and I cried with them. And Gosh. we talked and I took half hour. I, did, I only had five minutes. I took half hour. I didn't care at that point. It was very moving and I learned for doctors what we call patients are really human beings, individuals. They are not just some scientific experiment. They are suffering and loving individuals with their own story, their own ideas about what life is and can be, and their own ideas what they want to have in their last moments and in life generally. Oh, Christine, that's, a, that's an amazing story. Can you tell us what led you to get into palliative care? And for those who may not know, help them understand exactly what palliative care is, because I don't know about Germany, but here in the US, there's a lot of misconceptions about palliative care. Palliative generally is helping people that have a limited life expectancy. In the end, it's all of us, but those who have a very short expected life expectancy to live that life as best as they can without serious issues like pain, shortage of air, and extreme suffering. There is suffering involved, but it doesn't have to be extreme. I always was fascinated by death at a young age. Why? I always had depressive episodes. At 14, I thought about killing myself. At uh, 19, I became a member of the Voluntary Euthanasia Society in Germany because I wanted to learn about how to best commit suicide. 
And my ex-husband actually, he became a physician. He was an amazing physician. He wanted to learn how to best to commit suicide. So I did learn that. And uh, in medical school, I was very fortunate because in the first and second term, we had an optional course called Thanatology. I thought it was interesting. Let's learn more about death. Besides reading the books of Kubler-Ross, we did practices like design our own obituary, make your own gravestone. What do you want to have engraved? How do you want to prepare for your death? And, and, and we, we actually talked about how to deal as physicians with dying people and with our own feelings about people dying. That's amazing because most of the time, you already answered a question I was going to ask, most of the time medical school doesn't prepare you for those well, conversations. So I opted to take it, but I thought it was great that that was offered. It was in Germany, in Ulm. I hope they still offer that course. It, it was amazing. And then I had the opportunity, there were always guest lectures. And one of the guest lecturers was Viktor Frankl. Oh my God, I didn't know it at that time. I was 20, a young student. I didn't think, I didn't know nothing about life really. And I didn't know nothing and I heard him and I thought, wow, that's remarkable. And only later did it dawn to me what a remarkable man that really was. <laughs> and I read and reread his books and then several times. I can't tell you how many. Like, Man's Search for Meaning, I recommend it to all of my patients and clients. I think that's on on my list, but I certainly know who he is. Again, I'm just, I'm so impressed that that class was offered and that you took it. But, but I don't think that those types of classes, maybe now, but certainly before, were not really common in the U.S. in medical school. And most doctors don't know how to have those conversations. You mentioned something about the melanoma patient, that you had already had that discussion about do not resuscitate. Can you tell us a little bit more about those conversations? Because... I feel like we're very much aligned personally because we're all going to die. We're all sort of dying, right? We just don't know what it is. And I'm a really strong proponent of having that death conversation before you ever get sick. So can you tell us a little bit about that? That is a very good question. Thank you for that, Andrea, because many people live their life not ever thinking or even wanting to think about that it's finite. Everything yeah. that's living is dying all the time. Our hair is dying, we cut it off, the dead ends. We don't think twice about it. But we as an organism are going to die eventually too. Yeah. So it's good to prepare ourselves for this event and to prepare our life before death so we can then die without regrets. Because talking with dying people, I heard nobody say, I wish I had more money. I wish I had <laughs> worked harder. No, they say, I wish I had loved more, spent more time with family and kids, seen my kids grow up, and taken the risk to do what I really wanted to do in life. And now it's too late. Yeah. I volunteered here in, in Halifax, actually in the palliative care unit, to see how it is here in Canada in the palliative care. And it was actually very dignified. I was impressed on how well they treated their dying patients. Now, it wasn't easy to get into that unit, but once you were in there, they gave you all the resources you needed to die with dignity, which everybody deserves. I agree. Oh, my goodness. And yes, the conversations about whether you want to be resuscitated or not, if you didn't have it, 
have it now, have it with your partner, family, whoever is your next of kin. I talk sometimes to even older people, I ask them, if something happened to you, say you had a stroke, don't think so negative, I hear. Yeah, well, just imagine, you couldn't speak. Who would make the decisions for you? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's time to think about it. It's so important, right? It is so critical to have those conversations and, and to designate someone power of attorney. In Canada, there's an extra healthcare directive where you can actually, while you're still alive, specify what you want to happen, when you we want to be resuscitated or not. We have that in the U.S. as yeah. well. And it's yeah. semi-binding. Yeah. And I've seen it when my father was seriously ill. He didn't want to be resuscitated. And he had that in his directive. And sadly, my mother was able to overrule it. Oh, he, no. he was living as a vegetable for another two years before he passed away. Christine, oh my goodness. He had excellent care, but I don't think it's really what he wanted. Right. And for me, I know my husband would be able to deal with my dying. My mother wasn't able to deal with my father dying. So I don't blame her for doing that. She couldn't let him go at that point. It is hard. It's hard for a family member, especially if you have been married to someone, lived with someone for 50 years, and then they're on their deathbed. And you have to deal with it. You will be left alone. What was that like for you? And I appreciate you sharing something so intimate and personal. What was that like for you as a physician and as a daughter to see your mother go against your father's wishes? Well, it triggers a whole lot of emotions, obviously. At first you get upset and say, that's not what he wanted. You shouldn't have done it. I didn't say that. And then the second thought I had, well, what did go through her mind? And then I realized she can't deal with losing him right now. That caused me to accept it because as I'm, I'm dealing now mostly with depressed and anxious people and changing their thoughts to help them live better. And the death conversation is in all of them. And we, we all need a purpose in life, don't we? To prepare ourselves to die better. Yeah. And if we didn't fulfill at least some of our purpose, we usually can't die without regrets. And it's quite fascinating. Has there ever been a patient who really touched your heart or perhaps changed the way that you do something as a doctor? Many patients touched my heart. The one that died in my arm obviously was a very strong experience. And he truly changed the way I look at patients because before I just was a doctor, I knew it all, I knew what to do for them. And then I realized, hey, come, those patients are human beings. They had a life before they came into the hospital and some of them have a life after they get out of the hospital. Even if they stay in the hospital for the rest of their life, they have a right to be treated as individuals and have a life that gives them as much dignity and purpose as we can. So he did make a huge impact oh, yeah. on you. How is your experience as a caregiver different than the patient? And I'll back up and ask, Tell us about your experience as a caregiver. 
As a caregiver, I cared in the last stages for two people. One I call my Canadian mom. It's a lady that I cared for here in Canada that lived with us for a little bit. She didn't have no close relatives that she wanted to look after her. And at the end, she had to go in a nursing home and passed away there with me next to her. And the second that I looked after was my mother-in-law. And she died from lung cancer, which probably was caused by her life of smoking heavy. But whatever it is, I would never say it's your fault. Too bad. Now you're dying. See what you did? That's ridiculous. That it's not helpful. I always go by the premises. What is helpful? Is it helpful to accuse somebody of something they can't change anymore? Certainly not. Oh my gosh, I love that. But but people do get blamed. I mean, lung cancer, liver cancer, there's a lot of blame and shame that goes around. I've seen lung cancer patients in Germany that never smoked. They happen, they're rare, but they're there. So it's not just there are lung cancers caused by radon. There's lung cancer caused by asbestos. So just because somebody's dying from lung cancer it doesn't mean it was just the smoking or my, maybe sometimes it's not the smoking at all. I always ask people, don't jump to assumptions. There may be other options that we just can't see. And I don't like com complicated words. My One of my friends, he's very strategic, would call it, that's a confirmation bias. But whatever it is, I don't care. <laughs> I'm a down-to-earth person. I'm a simple person now. And I'm actually very happy to put my language down from the high horse of being medical lingual to everyday talk. That's so good to hear because when I hear jargon like financial toxicity, that's one of the ones I just want to just shoot my head. It's like, financial okay, so toxicity. Is, is that people that have too much money? Financial toxicity is a term, I guess maybe it's just in, in the US that's thrown around and it's very specifically applied to cancer patients who have to, you know, undergo financial strain, blah, blah, blah. Basically, it's this is too expensive. This okay. is too effing expensive. And so there are all these studies about financial toxicity. And I just look at people. And then sometimes when I'm in these meetings, especially with government employees, I'm like, mm -hmm. can we just say it's expensive? Can we just say that? Like, why do we have to say financial toxicity? But there's all kinds that of jargon. That is actually jargon. a fascinating question. And when you put it in simple language, what some people are saying is how much is your life worth at which stage is life of a young healthy child more than that of a cancer patient at the end of his life and when they don't want to deal with that ethical implication that that imposes and solve that in any way i i won't take sides that is a geopolitical issue but whatever you say why don't you say it as it is why yes. do you have to call it by some weird name that nobody really can define and then pretend you have some science to go with it that proves that cancer patients are, are cause financial toxicity to the system? Even when you talk about cancer, I think it is a very serious topic, but in life you need to have fun. And especially when it comes to nonsense like 
financial toxicity and KOL and euphemisms, <laughs> which I right. hate. Yes. Uh, call the things as it is. So I want to circle back to something you said, which I think is a great exercise. You talked about writing an obituary. And that's something I've encouraged people to do because it does really help you think about how you want to be remembered. So tell us, what would your obituary be? Yeah, I've thought about it a lot. And uh, since it's an anthology course, it has changed a little bit. But one thing I definitely don't want to hear in my obituary is, she has been a cranky person all, his li all her life and I'm so happy that she's dead. Okay, no one's going to print that. So, basically, no. But uh, sometimes you see an obituary and there's not much positive to find. That's the gist of it. So I would rather like to hear something. Her life was filled with love and care for others. She always strived to go and reach out to others to be of service. That's my purpose. I have it here in the wall. Growth for what purpose? Tell me, what was your worst moment during your entire career as a physician? My worst moment was probably when my boss sent me to an allergy seminar where I had to pretend to be an expert on allergology and I hadn't even started the residency in it. So I went there on that expert seminar with about 30 other experts trying to look uh, dignified and knowledgeable when I had not much idea of what they were really talking about. I learned a lot, but it was uncomfortable to say the least. How old were you? I was 22, 23. Oh, very young. Oh my goodness. Otherwise, I probably would have told my boss, I'm not the right person to sit there. <laughs> Well, you learned a lot. I'm going to guess that was his intention. What about your best moment as a physician? It's a very good question. My best moment being a physician was house calls and emergency DOD in Germany as a family doctor. Going out into a person's home in the morning in a snowy uh, winter day when the snow just had fallen and people start to shovel snow, that's when the heart attacks happen. So be beware if you have the tendency. So we went they out. happen in the morning? <laughs> Mostly, yeah. It happens a lot in the morning. What? They get out, they get up, they start shoveling. Exercise, you know, unused oh, exercise. Oh, my And goodness. then they get the heart attack. So we went and visited them in the house and then we saw them having the heart attack just in progress. And uh, then in Germany... Sometimes the doctor has to go with the ambulance because there's uh, uh, sometimes there's a doctor in the ambulance, sometimes there isn't. So if there was no other doctor available, my ex or I went with the ambulance to the hospital uh, to help them survive and get the oxygen and medication until they were in the hospital. That was good. Another really good moment was when one day a young person came dragged into our office between two of his friends. And I thought by myself, on first look, what is wrong with him? He's, he looks definitely drunk. <laughs> so, so, I put him, so I put him in a room and he threw up. So I said to myself, yeah, drunk, I can get it. So then I started to look at him closer and looked in his eyes and I saw one pupil was white, one pupil was small. 
So it dawned on me, shit, that guy is not drunk. He has a brain bleed. Called the helicopter. Helicopter landed on our driveway in the little village. Took him to the, the helicopter. He survived. Oh my goodness. Okay, I just got chills and this like whoosh of through my body. Oh my goodness. Does that patient have any idea that you saved his life? I think he does. <laughs> That's amazing. That's, I mean, you, you, if you not, realize. It's okay it. too, because it doesn't matter. It matters that I know and I'm grateful that at that moment I didn't jump to the conclusion he looks drunk, he must be drunk. But I took a second look, the look that I should have taken and did, and noticed what was wrong with him. And it was really simple. You look in his eyes, one pupil white, one pupil low. Classic symptom of a brain bleed. Oh, man. Wow. And I just love that you made house calls. Oh, yeah, of course. Who does that anymore? I mean, that doesn't happen anymore in Germany, does it? Do you know? Oh, yes. German doctors did, and I think they still do. Uh, and we were we did emergency duty out of our practice. Our practice was in the bottom of the house. We lived on top. So sometimes at the middle of the night, somebody rang the bell. So I put on my robe. We went down and saw what they needed. They might have had the gal colic. We had an ultrasound right there. Put the ultrasound out. Oh, yeah, you have a gal's down. Here's an IV. Put the medication in. The pain gone away and they were sent home. They didn't have to go anywhere else. That's incredible. I just small don't... surgeries right then and there. I just don't think that happens here. I could be totally wrong. I mean, no, it doesn't. So... Sadly. Yeah. Wow. What is one thing that you wish you had known at the beginning of your journey as a physician, those very early, early days? I wish I had known that my ex-husband wasn't the right man for me. And I wish I had gone what I originally wanted to be, which is become a psychiatrist. <laughs> so, okay, wait, okay, so I need some clarification. So what does your ex-husband have to do with your choice of not being a psychiatrist? Like, well, how do they relate? When I went to a course, that would have helped me decide which way to go. That was the date he wanted to marry me. And stupid me said yes. <laughs> no. You're kidding me. No, no. So I canceled that course and married him. And then I had two kids and uh, everything else fell down the wayside. But in the end, I'm grateful. Wow. Because That's all so the experiences that I made from there ups and downs, many downs, some ups, led me to who I am now. And many people don't know that when I was 16, I went to the library in Germany. You know, I'm old, I'm 60. So there were really books there, no computers. So I went <laughs> to the library and I looked for a book to read. So by serendipity, a book fell on my hand. It was English language. And it said, on becoming a person by Carl Rogers. And I said to myself, that's what I want to be. And I'm still working at it 44 years later. Oh, gosh, then we have to put a link to that in the show notes. So you've mentioned two books so far. I want to make sure we put a link to that. If you could only do one thing, I'm going to give you kind of two things. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in Canada, and if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in Germany, what would they be and why? 
in Canada, I would empower family doctors to really be family doctors. Take some of the load with paperwork and stuff off them and help them realize that a house call is really not bad and that uh, emergency duty is not a chore but a privilege. And that's one thing. And the second thing in Canada is I would put in an intermediary between patients that are suffering and the specialists or experts like doctors. If that's not possible to help those family doctors because we don't have enough right now, how about adding some like barefoot doctors like of the West, like like trained coaches or something as intermediaries that go in Patient the patients' navigators. houses, see how they live and help them with lifestyle changes. Because as a doctor, you tell people, oh, you have to eat better and you have to exercise. But 95% never do any of that. It would be much easier and more efficient to do it that way, I think. In Germany, hmm, we had too many doctors. I'm not sure how it is now. Oh yeah, way you too had many. too many. You know, it was funny because when we emigrated to Canada on the consulate on emigration, we were told, you know, you won't be able to work in Canada as a doctor. We don't need doctors in Canada. And then when I arrived in Canada, oh, you're the doctor. Oh, we need doctors. And I thought, oops, somebody didn't tell me the truth. So in Germany, there were too many doctors and they actually were able to squeeze the doctors. So at the end, when my ex-husband started Doctors in Germany are paid by points, not by dollars. So if you see a patient, so you get 20 points. When my husband started, yeah, it, it, because you, the, the health insurance in Germany distributes the money to a central agency, uh, say $50 per three months per patient. That's just a figure I put in the room. And then those $50 gets distributed to the doctors according how many points they claim. See, that's how it works. So when my ex-husband started as a family doctor, say that he got 20 points to treat a patient. That was about $20. That was quite okay. When he finished 10 years later, one point was 10 cents. Oh my God, this because is so had too bizarre many doctors. to me. So I've what never... they did to save yeah. money, the point value went down, the doctors got squeezed. The salary went down. And that also encourages that encourages people not to become doctors, right? When they wow. and in, in Canada and the States, doctors have a much better life. They get paid in actual hard cash ever dollars. <laughs> well, we do um like Canada, it sounds like we do have a shortage of primary care physicians here, family doctors. It's and I think a lot of it is, and I know they're trying to change this here in the US, is being a primary care physician, you don't typically make nearly as much money as a specialist, right? And you come out of medical school so deep, deep, deep into debt. And so many doctors, even if they want to be a pediatrician, they want to be general practitioner, it just doesn't make sense financially for them. But I, I do see that shifting in the last five years or so. I mean, there are medical schools now, my alma mater, University of Southern California in Los Angeles, no longer charges tuition for medical school. That's good. Yeah. It's highly competitive, but you will not come out of medical school I like that. Debt. And I think if you want more physicians in the West that are trained here, we need to finance medical school differently. 
And I also advocate against having the financing at least to a major proportion done by the pharmaceutical industry. I do not think that is a good model for the long run. I agree. I agree. God, you're so darn fascinating. I'm just a regular person telling it as it is. I'm blunt. <laughs> I tell it as I see things. I may be wrong. I know that. I'm not perfect. Oh, my God, I'm not. What do you think? <laughs> my husband tells me that. My, I, I'm now married to a Canadian. My husband is here from Halifax. You are. For 20, three years. We just had our 23rd uh, anniversary. And he Aww. is so down to earth. And he keeps me grounded. And he makes sure to remind me every now and then that I'm not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, he definitely sounds like mm, a keeper. He is. Christine, are you ready for the Thriver sure. Rapid Fire questions? Beach, desert, Beach. or mountains? Beach Boys, Beatles, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? What is one word that best describes you? I'm growing. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? What is it? Let it go by the Beatles? Let it be by the Beatles. Let it be, yeah. And the last meal you want to eat? It depends. When I'm feeling good, I'll have a chocolate bar. Milk chocolate. <laughs> with marzipan with it. Mm. I'm on the same page. Like, I want to eat something that is so bad for me or that I can't tolerate right now. You know, I just... Give me ice cream, pizza, chocolate, I whatever. I can have both, um, but just not enough. Then I want to really go on it. Why wait until we die? Hey, but that would be the last thing I want to, <laughs> want to eat because it really satisfies me, my cravings. And the last person or people you want to well, see? Well, you never know. You never know. If my husband is still around, I wouldn't mind seeing him. But otherwise, a very nice, friendly nurse or doctor will do. Aww. Or a volunteer. Somebody kind and friendly and caring. That's all. And what will be the last words that you speak? Probably none. From knowing people that have died, they usually don't say much in their last days. If I'm able to do so, I would say, I had a good life. I'm re ready to let it go. And aside from Cancer U, what is one resource you recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And I definitely want you to tell us how to get in touch with you. There's actually many resources. I know I had the pleasure for a while to work with the Healing and Cancer Foundation here in Canada, which is a charity that has groups for cancer patients, which was amazing. If you can do yoga or Tai Chi or another meditative exercise, it strengthens and it also helps you to get balance and a little of the spiritual part that's so important. And if somebody wants to get in touch with me, you will share my website. It's doccristine.com, D-O-C-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E.com. And uh, you can go to the contact page, book a free call with me. It's a no pitch call just to help out. And if I'm not the right person to work with you, that's not an issue. I'll refer you to somebody that might be better suited or I'll send you along the way. Christine, it has been such a pleasure getting to know you and having you share your story with us today and, and also just your expertise. I really, really appreciate it. I have some life experience, but eh, I'm not that much of an expert, maybe in living because I'm now 60. But <laughs> I plan on living another 40 to 50 years if 
my brain works with me and if I don't succumb to cancer, which could happen, but doesn't bother me. If I die tomorrow, I had a good life. Ugh. If only everyone felt the way you do, I think we'd be a happier society. Thank, Thank you, Andrea. You. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.